As we prepare for Travis to come and preach to us this evening, I will be reading our scripture from Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. The Israelites, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had died when our kindred died before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness for us and our livestock to die here? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, as he had commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me, to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and by which he showed his holiness. This is God's word to us. Hi, everybody. Would you join me in prayer? Merciful God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the beauty that we've taken part in. We've been able to participate in such wonderful worship, such beautiful music and words, and such incredible proclamations of your truth. And it is deeply humbling to have heard your truth proclaimed yet again through these scriptures, which we now seek to study, seek to open up. And so as best human beings like us are able to, in all of our brokenness, may we come to this text, hear words of life, hear your truth, hear your challenge to us again and again. For our growth, for our development as people who want to follow you, and for your great will to be done in the world. We lift up this time to you. May the words of my mouth and the things that we think about in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, I bring you greetings from a far-off land known as the East Side. It's this fabulous, magical place. Uh, no, just kidding. I uh, am the East Side pastor, and so uh, we meet at Peter Kirk Community Center, uh, which is in uh, wonderful downtown Kirkland at 10 o'clock every Sunday. Love to see some of you come there. Uh, I also have to shout out greetings to uh, my relatives in Texas, where I'm from. They're watching online. It's uh, jammies at church night at my parents' house, so hey, everybody. I want to actually start off, though, with a little bit uh, more serious subject. Tonight we're talking about this moment in the life of Moses 
that's not marked by some very pleasant things. It's marked uh, by grief and by anger. And so, uh, as I've even said those words, I know there are those of us in the room for whom those words cause us to kind of stiffen up a little bit. Like we maybe lose our breath or we feel our heart rate pick up a little. Just the thought of talking about grief or anger kind of makes us brace for impact. And and I can assure you, I'm one of those people too. Uh, I know there are some for whom uh, just thinking about the topic of anger, you're like, you know, I don't really go there. I'm pretty, you know, even keel. I'm kind of chill. I'm I'm good. Uh, I'm going to mention three names, and I guarantee you one of them is going to make you angry. Are you ready? First name is Donald Trump. The second name is Hillary Clinton. And the third name is Tom Brady. Somebody got to be angry in here, right? I must have touched on something. My point in all this is that we can relate to anger. We can relate to this subject, wherever we're coming from. Uh, Brad, the pastor at Ballard, is married to Carrie, who is a therapist. Carrie, actually, brought a really interesting thing through Brad at Teaching Team this week. Uh, there are different levels to anger. I didn't really know this, but are some of you familiar with uh, Kubler-Ross's uh, grief cycles, kind of that theory? This is a little bit related to that. Think of these as steps down a ladder in terms of anger. And I just want to hold these out as we start as ways for us to kind of think about this a little bit more deeply. So these are the steps, right? You don't have to write this down. This is kind of introductory. So the first step of anger is just mild irritation, right? You're just mildly irritated at something. Uh, it's marked by uneasiness brought on by some unpleasant disturbance. I have a neighbor who loves to work on his dirt bike at midnight on Tuesdays. That's mild irritation, right? Like, what are you doing, man? The next step after that is indignation. And I'm going to lean on us just a little bit here. Uh, Indignation is a slightly more sensitive version of mild irritation. It's a reaction to something that seems unfair or unreasonable. Uh, We have a love affair with indignation in the Seattle area. We really like being indignant quietly because we believe that our education and our status and our privilege kind of gives us the responsibility to maybe look down on someone that might think a little differently than we do. Or maybe that's just me. I don't know. Maybe you guys don't. Don't do that. This happens on the left and on the right. Wrath is the next step down. Psychologists say that wrath never goes unexpressed, so think about that. If you're feeling wrath towards someone, it's going to come out no matter what. No one restrains wrath. When your anger reaches that level, you've got this desire. You're going to get vengeance. You're going to get in there. You're going to do something about it. You're going to defend yourself. Next step down after that is fury, not just the Brad Pitt movie. The fourth level of anger, it introduces violence into the equation. And this is where we start to get uncomfortable with what I've been talking about. It may include kind of a momentary loss of control. You snap out. You black out for just a minute. In a moment of fury, we will strike out against somebody else. We've crossed the line. And there's still one more step to go. Rage is the most intense level of angry expressions. It's the most dangerous form of anger. It can so overcome and overwhelm a person that they are capable of doing stuff and then not even remembering it later on. It's like blacking out. Experts say that a person filled with rage can do something as awful as commit murder while hardly realizing that they're doing it. So while we joke about road rage, while we joke about these other forms of rage, they are actually a thing. And I actually think we see Moses step into each of these levels of anger in our text today. I think we see him touched by these very real things that we all go through together. And we've been studying Moses' character development throughout the summer, right? This is one of the things that I've loved about this sermon series called The Art of the Journey. We haven't just been preaching through Moses' life and this event and that event. We've been looking at how things change for him, how his leadership and his character is development. 
And just to summarize what I've been saying right now, sometimes our development isn't pretty. Sometimes the way God has developed you and me, it's not pretty to look at. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, think about middle school. Last week, we looked at how the people of God looked back, looked around, and really needed to look forward so they could join God in what he was doing. Moses' leadership is going to be key in that, but today's text is kind of a stopping point for Moses. This is where his leadership goes from thriving, taking the people forward into God's great future, and then he's literally on the table on life support as a leader. How does that happen? Well, we're going to look at a couple of different moments, and we're going to see where the switch flips, where he's carried down that ladder of anger, and we're going to see him in full-on rage. But here's our hope. Our hope is that God is teaching something through this, as he always is. So I want to invite you to hold on to that hope with me as we get into the text. Here's our thesis statement. This will kind of guide our time together. And if you want to flip over to your outline and follow us through, this is where we'll start. God moves us through grief and anger to show us his gracious provision and... His calling to justice. God moves us through grief and anger to show us his gracious provision and our calling to his justice. And like many great stories start, this story is going to start with a big event, a traumatic event in the life of Moses. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Numbers chapter 20. We're just going to start in verse 1 that was read for us a moment ago. And the summary of that is very simple. Miriam passes away. That's what we know from verse 1. And now whenever a character in a story dies, anytime you're reading, anytime you're looking at a piece of literature, anytime a character passes away, it's really important to stop and ask the question, who did we lose? Okay, so somebody passed away. What's the significance of that? What's the weight on that? In this case, we see it through the lens of who did Moses lose? What does Miriam's loss mean to him? Here's what I think it means. Miriam was Moses' sister, but she was much more than that. She helped rescue him from abandonment way back in Exodus chapter 2. She was among that group of people that advocated for him to be pulled out of the river and brought into Pharaoh's household. She was with Moses at the miracle of the Red Sea. She saw the wondrous works of God, the power of God, opening up the seas so the people of of Israel could pass through. And then on the other side of that, she leads the people in worship. Right at the end of Exodus chapter 15, she opens this beautiful song before the people and she helps them lift up their praises to God in a glorious moment in their life together. Now, just a little bit before this passage in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 12, she and Moses get into a scuffle. They get into a little bit of a sibling fight and leprosy breaks out and it's a painful moment. Moses goes in to advocate for his sister for her healing before the Lord. And if you want to read it on your own time, I'd recommend it. There's this this tenderness in the language. There's a real sweetness to it about how they care for one another. Now, yes, I'm painting with very, very broad brushstrokes here, but the point I'm trying to make is that Miriam was one of the key voices throughout Moses' life. She helped tell his story. She was one of the architects, not just of his story, but the story of the people of Israel. She was one of the leaders. I want to pause for just a minute and offer us a chance to think about something. Have you had someone in your life who was one of the architects of your story and now they're gone. They've passed away. Maybe, maybe it was recent, maybe it wasn't. As I was writing and studying this week, uh, I thought of my grandpa, Papa. Uh, he was uh, my mom's dad. He passed away 13 years ago. But he was one of the people that really helped me connect my mind to my faith. When I was a teenager, he was telling me about this crazy thing called theology. 
right? And he would tell me about his favorite Bible passages. He kind of inspired me to think like a theologian. And he's been gone for 13 years, but he has had an impact on my life like Miriam. And I wonder who that's been for you. Miriam helped make Israel more mature, more engaged with God through their trials in the wilderness. She bore those memories. She carried the memories of God's faithfulness. She was an eyewitness to history, and now she's gone. And Moses, as the leader of the people of Israel, is that much lonelier because Miriam isn't there anymore. Miriam's death affects the community as a whole. I'm sure there were other people who kind of felt it as she passed away, who grieved with Moses and with others. And the reason we're spending a little bit of time on this is because this is the undercurrent to the whole rest of the story. Moses is going to make some really bad decisions in our text later on, in part because of how his foundation has been fractured. This person, this confidant, this, this close sister that he's been leaning on pretty much his whole journey with the people of Israel is gone. And, and the image that came to my mind uh, as, I was, as I was thinking about this this week is that of a boat adrift. Are you familiar with the term unmoored? There are things in our life that unmoor us from our usual foundations. In this case, someone who's passed away has unmoored Moses. It's like he's drifting out into the water. He doesn't know what to do. The loss of Miriam unmoors him. This makes him more susceptible to sliding down those levels of anger that we talked about. And especially this comes into play when he hears an all-too-familiar frame, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But I want to stop and ask you guys a question that I think we all need to ask ourselves from time to time. What's the story of grief in your life? What's grief done to you or to your family? Or... What have you avoided when grief has come up? A lot of families, grief is not something that we talk about. So is that the case? And if so, don't carry shame over that, but where is God calling you to be the light in the middle of the grief? Where might you need that light shown into your heart? When someone passes away, would you say that your family is able to deal with it or not? Can you relate to Moses' sense of just being unmoored, settling into that grief? If that's where you're at today, please hear me. You do not have to do that by yourself. We got people here, not just staff, we got people here who are trained to love and to serve and equip folks to get through that season of grief. And if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to talk to me or another one of our staff here. Let's move ahead just a little bit in the text. If you want to go back to your Bibles with me, look at uh, Numbers 20. We've moved on from Miriam's death, momentarily, of course. And now we're going to look at verses 2 through 8. Nancy just read these for us, but I'm going to read them for us again to refresh our memory. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. Here comes the familiar refrain. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had died with our kindred, when our kindred died, before the Lord, why have you brought us, brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? Why have you brought, excuse me, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, for there is no water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron went away from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and your brother Aaron, and command the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Thus you shall bring water out of the rock for them. Thus you shall provide drink for the congregation and their livestock. Okay, what's going on here? The people have no water to drink. This is a common problem when you're wandering in the desert for 40 years. 
But like we've seen many times before, the people grumble, their grumbling goes before Moses, Moses goes before God, and God provides. In his mercy, God provides. In this case, God is giving Moses a very clear pathway to his provision, which Moses is responsible for following. Now, the specificity of God's instruction actually does come into play again, so please pay close attention to verses 7 and 8. The summary of it is, God says to Moses, go talk to that inanimate object. Go tell the rock to bring forth water. Follow my directions, Moses, and your people will have what they need. Now, we'll turn to Moses' actions in just a moment, but briefly, God has given a pathway to his provision, and this is no spoiler alert here, Moses doesn't listen. So are you experiencing that in your life right now? In other words, have you had a moment where you've been praying, you've been asking God for something, the pathway comes, and you're going, no, I want to do it my way. Are you going through that right now? Does this not happen to us from time to time where we ask for something, we ask for something, but when God presents the pathway to his provision for us, we go, you know, that wasn't quite how I was picturing it, so I'm going to go over here and do my thing. And this may cut pretty deep, but are you and I a little bit like Moses, and then when we are unmoored, when we're a little angry, we really don't want to hear what God has to say? That's actually the last time we really want to hear God giving us specific instructions to do what he's called us to do, to live the lives he's called us to lead. Is your anger or my anger filtering the instruction of God, the call of God? I have an idea about where some of this deafness is coming into play for Moses, because clearly clearly he ain't hearing God right. Uh, Scott, the pastor of Bethany North, his wife Heather do a lot of speaking and teaching on marriage. Uh, One of the phrases that I love that Scott shared with me uh, and with others is that a healthy marriage is built on thousands of small good decisions. A healthy relationship of any kind, but a healthy marriage is built on thousands of small good decisions. In other words, making small choices. So my wife went to the grocery store last night to get groceries for us for the week, and she knew I'd be speaking here tonight. So what was the small decision she made to bless me? She bought me my favorite drink, chocolate milk. So I had my chocolate milk right before I came to be with you guys. That is a small life-giving decision that my wife made to bless me. Making small choices, using my words to bless somebody else instead of cursing them, sharing something painful even if I don't feel like it, complaining or not complaining instead of instead using words of blessing. Any of those kind of things which are tiny things in one sense accumulate to a foundation of health in our relationships. The flip side of the coin is what I think is happening with Moses. He's made a series of bad decisions. This is death by a thousand cuts, a thousand lashes. All the bad decisions he's been making are piling up, working endless hours. This happened to him, right, when Jethro came and talked to him and said, buddy, you cannot be the judge over all of Israel. You gotta have some people come help you. He's been a workaholic. He did not listen to wise counsel at various times in his journey, and now he chooses to outright disobey God. These things are the summary, the accumulation of a bunch of bad choices. Even though Moses has heard the right way to move forward, even though he knows it, this is where the idea that knowledge fixes everything doesn't come up quite right. He chooses to go his way, and the consequences are severe. It actually leads to a catastrophe for him, and his leadership is done. But before we go to the next section, hold on to this idea that the gospel is in the text. There is hope. The hope is this. Moses is furious, Moses is covered in rage, but what does God do? He still brings water. 
Your anger, my anger, any of these things that we think might be getting in the way of God, uh uh-uh. If God wants to provide and if his pathway is there, it's going to happen. The grace of the gospel pours out literally like water for the people of Israel, and Moses can't stop that. Okay, this is where we move from all those little bad decisions adding up to the moment of catastrophe. The grief gets mixed into it all, and it's just a mess. So look with me again at Numbers 20. We're going to look at verses 9 and 11. Sorry I don't have this marked. I had it marked earlier, I promise. Numbers 20, 9 through 11. So Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Listen, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock twice with his staff, water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. One of the commentaries that I read this week pointed out something really interesting. Moses is batting at 600. He gets two of the three commandments of God actually correct, but he still fails when it counts the most. So go back in our previous section. What did God say to him? God told Moses, okay, listen, you need to get the people in front of you, you need to pick up your staff, and you need to talk to the rock. Those are the three things that God told him to do. Right at the beginning of verse 11, what does Moses get right? He gets the people together. Him and Aaron, they gather them together. He picks up his staff. He's, he's two for three. He's doing pretty good. And then the third point comes along, where he's just supposed to speak to the rock, and he doesn't do it. Now, given he had some history here, back in Exodus 17, he actually struck the rock, and water came forth from it, right? So maybe he was playing that tape in his head. Who knows? The point is, he gets completely sideways in this task. He chooses to strike the rock, and in this context, that would have been beyond awful. Think about who he's standing in front of. He's standing in front of two million people of Israel. However they cram them into this place that they were at, he's standing in front of them. And one of the commentaries I read this week made this interesting note. In the historical context, the way Moses would have sounded and appeared to the people that he was serving when he angrily said, I'm going to get this water for you guys and I'm going to hit the rock, what they might have pictured in their eyes was not the prophet, not the man chosen by God. They might have pictured him as a pagan sorcerer. In other words, his actions and his activities actually looked more like that than it looked like who he was supposed to be. That's chilling if you're a leader. That's chilling if you are supposed to be standing in front of people, leading them, pointing them toward God, and instead he has gone completely the opposite direction. He chides the people in arrogance, he strikes the rock twice, God's pathway to provision is disregarded, and the accumulation of all those bad decisions that he's been making leads to a total catastrophe. And it brings a severe consequence. But let's back up for just a moment. Let's think about the people in front of him for just a sec. In a way, they have to deal with the consequences of his anger. They have to hold what happens after he gets angry. The experience of seeing their leader break down, it's going to stick with them. When you and I get angry, who watches us? When you get mad, who's your audience? Is it someone that you come to at work and you're like, okay, look, I just got to dump this on you again. I know this isn't great, but then it just starts rolling, right? And then you just feed off of one thing and off another thing and off another thing. That's the audience for your anger. 
maybe there's a, you got a particular kiddo in your household right now, and they're just getting you, right? Like, you just cannot do it. And it seems like you're always yelling at them. When you and I get angry, who's privy to it? And here's the hope. The hope is that because of Jesus Christ, the way we respond when we're angry is not the end of the story. It's not the end of your story. It's not the end of my story. Anger can be turned into hope by showing people the humility of Jesus Christ. How do we do that? If you pictured someone that's kind of bearing the brunt of your anger, that's sort of holding that after you've been angry from time to time, maybe this is the week that you go up to him and you go, you know what, I'm sorry. I've been behaving this way. I've gotten into this pattern. I really don't like it. It puts you in a very uncomfortable position. I'm sorry. And we have this funny myth in our culture where we tell ourselves like, well, you know, if it's been like a week, that's the expiration date for apologizing, right? Like it's awkward if you go and apologize after a week. Forget that. There's no expiration date for seeking shalom, seeking restoration between people that we love and care about in Jesus Christ. So this week, would you be in a position to bless someone with words of life, words of forgiveness, words of humility, and start turning that anger into a place of hope? I think we can. Could that be something that God's calling us to do this week? So Moses has been hurt. Grief has shaken him to the core. His anger has exploded on the people that he's supposed to serve. And now, now, we get to hear the grace in this story. It don't sound like it at first, but it's grace. Numbers 20, verses 12 and 13. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me to show my holiness before the eyes of the Israelites, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and by which he showed his holiness. This text touches on one of the great challenges of being a Christian and trying to take the Bible seriously. This is one of the great critiques that I think people outside the faith sincerely bring to those of us that do follow Jesus Christ. It seems like God is angry. And it especially seems like the God of the Old Testament is angry. Why does he always seem like he's so angry? Why does it seem like the God of the New Testament is all about grace and goodness? What's that difference? What's that dichotomy about? I had a Jewish friend who once made the joke that God was a pretty mean dude until he had a son and then he mellowed out. <laughs> That's a much longer sermon. But let me assure you that this text is not about punishment. There's a big difference between punishment and justice. God's words toward Moses are not punitive, nor are they meant to be negative. God's words to Moses are all about justice. Punishment, as we understand it, is highly individualistic and situational. When someone commits a crime in our culture, they are put on trial from a jury of their peers, they're found guilty, and then the person responsible for paying restitution for their crimes is them. So it's an individual charge carried out by an individual person. God's justice is not like that. And what's happening in this text is God's justice. How do we know that that's what's happening in this text? Because of the use of one word twice. Did you catch it? Holiness. Holiness is a big difference between a punishment and justice, and it starts with holiness. God says to Moses, you were supposed to show the people my holiness. You were supposed to demonstrate to them the holiness of God. Verse 13 is kind of a summary statement by the narrator. says the same thing. God's justice has everything to do with holiness. A holy and perfect God cannot tolerate darkness. 
will not tolerate darkness and sin. His his holiness demands that the darkness go away and never come back. This is that great dialogue between Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, right? In John chapter 8. He sends all the other guys away and he stands there with this broken woman. He restores her. And then what are those wonderful words, but challenging words that he says to her, go and sin no more. A holy God will not abide the darkness that we want to keep coming back to. But that's what God is doing for the people of Israel. He's showing them justice, justice that demonstrates his holiness. He's also showing them his justice because it involves the whole community. It's not just one person going after the bad guys. It's not just all the bad things are going to be fixed by this one guy. We saw this earlier in his story. Again, when he's the judge, when he's sitting in in judgment over all the people of Israel, his father-in-law Jethro comes to him and says, dude, you cannot do this by yourself. And so he says, you need to bring in a team. And that's exactly what Jethro does, or what Moses does. Moses gets wise leaders from Israel to help settle disputes, and so justice then becomes an effort of the entire community. So God's justice is not punitive. It's communal. It's about healing and reconciliation and freedom. This is Jeremiah 29.7, right? Seek, seek the shalom, seek the peace of the city into which I have sent you into exile, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. That is what God calls us to when we are the people who seek justice. So even though this is an incredibly painful decision, this is going to be good for Moses and for the people of Israel. Moses is slowly released from his leadership. He doesn't get to be leading the people anymore once they get in the promised land. And the people get new leaders who are going to be set up well to lead them there. So let's go back to our thesis for just a moment. God moves us through grief and anger to show us his gracious provision and our calling to his justice. So let me just review that for us. This is a little bit more reflective. How are you and I doing with our grief? How are you and I doing with our anger? Who's your audience? Who bears the brunt of your anger? And this brings us to really what's our final point tonight about trust. Trust and provision. This text is about one man failing to trust God, choosing not to trust God, right? That's the pathway that God had laid out for him. That's the path of trust. And he says, "Uh uh-uh, I got it. John Goldengay is a professor at Fuller Seminary, and he wrote this about the text. We commonly assume that the opposite of trusting God is doubting God. But in the Old Testament, the opposite of trusting God is trusting something else, such as another God or political resources or trusting ourselves. Moses is not trusting God because he's putting himself in the place of God. It's not doubt, it's misplaced trust. The gospel demands that we look for the sin underneath the sin. The sin Moses faced was not that he was just a straight up angry guy, that he was a rage monster. It was not that he had this breakdown. That's not what opted him out. It was his anger's short-circuiting of his ability to trust God. Totally short-circuited that. He put himself in God's place in charge, which is idolatry. And we do this all the time. And if you're like me, if you're sitting in a position of leadership, I really want to encourage you this week. If you have any time at all to reflect, first of all, make time to reflect. And reflect on this idea. Where are the places in your leadership, in your connection with anybody, where you're relying on yourself? Where you are totally putting unnecessary weight on yourself to come up with the best solution, to create the next great product, to write the next great program, whatever it is, Would you just pause and just free yourself from that and say, you know what? 
I serve the God of the universe. I do not have to have this all dialed in and all figured out. Relying on my capacity is gonna leave me as a train wreck. But relying and appropriating the capacity of God, that is where life is found. Trust often revolves around God's provision. That's really what it comes back to, right? Moses is leading his people, they're thirsty, he wants to provide for them, and we see God's provision in the text, and this is the gospel. Moses has not done right by God. He did not act right, he didn't say the right words, he got two out of three, right? Even though Moses has really not done what we would think he's supposed to do to earn God's favor, God still gives it to him. God still gives to him and to his people. Our actions cannot disrupt the provision of God. We may not hear it. We may not be able to follow the pathway that God has for us. When God wants the people to see his provision and love, they're going to see it. We are not going to be able to interrupt that. Bad leadership can't stop that. My anger, your anger, my grief, your grief cannot stop that because the gospel charges through all those barriers. And thank God for that because it means there is hope for people like you, for people like me, for people like Moses. Thanks be to God. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. And he calls us to rely on him and rely on him providing for us. And one of the ways that we do that is when we come together to the table. And so at this table, we are invited into fellowship with Jesus. We're invited to drop our guards of provision of trying to come up with stuff for ourselves, trying to come up with our own resources, we're invited to simply be guests at the table of Jesus Christ and for him to say to us, come and sit with me. Come, my beloved children, and share this meal with me. So as we make our way to this table, I wanna pray and ask God to set apart this time and pray over the preaching of the word. Would you join me in prayer? Merciful God, we thank you for your word. May it reside in our hearts And empower us to go forth to be people who talk so uh, sincerely and winsomely about your provision, about your love and your care. And what you showed to Moses, God, oh, your mercy to him, your provision for him was so powerful. Thank you. As we come now to a place of your provision for us at the table, we thank you that Jesus set these activities, this minute with him in motion from long ago. He sat at a table with his disciples, his friends, and he called them into fellowship with him where he could pour into them, provide for them over and over and over again so that they could go out and be people who speak the truth to power in the world. So God, as we come to be nourished at this table yet again, would you bless these very simple elements of bread and juice? May it be used for your glory. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.